This evening we begin looking at the last section of the book of Joshua. The first part of the book recorded the conquest of the promised land. The second part dealt with dividing up the land. And now the last three chapters of the book deal with worship in the land. Tonight we're going to look at chapter 22, a chapter which shows us the best kind of worship war. If you're looking up uh, that passage, is chapter 237 in the church Bibles or in the large print 363. You may have heard this phrase, worship war. It's often used today to talk about Christians fighting among themselves, usually about styles of music. And I think there are three kinds of worship war. The first kind are the, necess- the unnecessary worship wars. They're unnecessary because they're not wars about anything substantive. They're simply about personal preferences. But then there are the kind of worship wars that are necessary when one side is actually deviating from the truth and the other side has to do something about it. But in Joshua 22, we're going to see a third kind of worship war, the best kind. And we'll have to follow this through to find out what that is. We're joining the Israelites here at a time in their history when it seems they're done with conflict. Certainly the Canaanites have been subdued, even if they haven't been completely taken care of. And the land, as we've seen in recent weeks, has been carefully divided up, apparently without any really significant arguments. So it looks like things are done and dusted. So much so that Joshua sends the eastern tribes back home. If you remember the area that we're dealing with, here's Canaan to the west of the Jordan River, And you may remember that before the conquest of Canaan ever started, two and a half of the 12 tribes had already been allocated land here on the east side of the Jordan River. But back in chapter 1, Joshua reminded those tribes of the promise they had made. Before the conquest started, they had promised to fight alongside the other nine and a half tribes until the conquest was over. Joshua reminded them of that and they responded to his reminder. They kept their promise all through those battles that we've seen in this book. And now, years later, Joshua finally calls the two and a half tribes together. And this is what we read in chapter 22, verse 1. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. But be very careful to keep the commandment 
and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Then Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their homes. To the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given land in Bashan. And to the other half of the tribe, Joshua gave land on the west side of the Jordan, along with their fellow Israelites. When Joshua sent them home, he blessed them, saying, Return to your homes with your great wealth, with large herds of livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and a great quantity of clothing. And divide the plunder from your enemies with your fellow Israelites. So Joshua sends the two and a half tribes off with a commendation and a reminder. He's able to commend them for their faithfulness. In verse 2 he says they've done everything they were commanded. In verse 3 they haven't deserted their fellow Israelites. They stuck with the mission till the end. And the rewards for their faithfulness are big, apparently. Verse 8 says they're going home with great wealth. But alongside the commendation, Joshua gives them a clear reminder in verse 5. Be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you. To love the Lord your God. To walk in obedience to him. To keep his commands. To hold fast to him. And to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Apart from the incident with Achan, Israel has stayed united in their obedience to God up to this point. Through all those years of war, the people have been united in faithfulness. But Joshua wants them to realize God expects faithfulness in the midst of peace and prosperity too. And that can be even tougher than faithfulness in wartime. People relax when their lives are peaceful and prosperous. They often let down their spiritual guard in a way they would never do in wartime. And this is a good reminder for us too. Sometimes when we face a crisis in our lives, it can keep us on our toes spiritually. We can become really focused on what's most important. Often people say the times they have felt closest to God have been times of difficulty in their lives. But when the crisis gives way to easier times, that can be when we struggle most to keep our priorities right. There just doesn't seem to be the same urgency to hold fast to God and walk in obedience. And so those are the times we need to be especially careful to stay close to him. That's what Joshua tries to impress on these two and a half tribes as he sends them off. But look what happens next. Verse 9. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh in Canaan to return to Gilead, their own land which they had acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Geliloth, near the Jordan, in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. 
And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Galiloth, near the Jordan, on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. No sooner have the two and a half tribes marched off with Joshua's blessing than Israel is on the brink of civil war. Why? Well, the two and a half tribes build this imposing altar. That means it's big. It's visible for miles. And apparently they build it on the western side of the Jordan before they cross the Jordan to their own territory. That territory east of the Jordan is referred to here as Gilead. What's this imposing altar for? Well, it's not hard to guess what it might be for. And the other nine and a half tribes are quick to guess what it's for. They assume the altar is built for some kind of alternative worship. And really, it's a sign of their spiritual health that they get so upset by that possibility. They know it would be disastrous to allow that to go on. Back in Deuteronomy, God made it clear there was to be one place of worship in Israel. At this point in time, that place is Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle is. Later on, it would be Jerusalem. But it was always one place. People were not to spread out doing their own thing, in their own way and 101 other places. That could only lead to watered-down, wayward worship. And so, Israel is right to get fired up about the possibility of false worship. That would warrant a civil war. But the nine and a half tribes also have a fresh memory of just how faithful the two and a half tribes have been. And so before they start a war, they decide to give their brothers a chance to repent. Or at least explain themselves. And so we read in verse 13. The Israelites sent Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan son of Zerah was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sins. 
this delegation from the nine and a half tribes does two things. First, they remind their brothers that the sin of some has consequences for everybody. They mention two incidents to prove that. In verse 17, they talk about the sin of Peor. That's a reference to something that happened before the conquest of Canaan even started. It's recorded in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 25. When Israel was camped at Shittim, east of the Jordan, some Israelite men became involved in sexual immorality with Moabite women. And they began to worship Moabite gods, particularly one called the Baal of Peor. The result of it all was that God sent a plague in which 24,000 Israelites died. It was such a famous incident that the New Testament uses it to warn the church about sexual immorality and false worship. Here in Joshua 22, Phineas is the man leading the delegation. He was at Peor when all that happened. And he stood up for God's honor in the middle of it all. So much so that at the time God said, Phineas was as zealous for my honor as I am. That's an amazing thing for God to say about anybody. And it may explain why the nine and a half tribes asked Phineas to lead this delegation. They know his priorities are right. It's not entirely clear what Phineas means here in verse 17 when he says, up to this day we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin. Meaning the sin of Peor. He may simply mean we're still susceptible to that sin. It's a battle we have to keep on fighting. But what is clear is that messing around with false worship is disastrous. Not only for those who do it, but for the rest of God's people too. The delegation also mentioned the unfaithfulness of Achan, son of Zerah, in verse 20. That's a much more recent incident. It should be fresh in everyone's memory. When Israel attacked Jericho, they were told to destroy everything except the silver, gold, bronze, and iron. Those things were to go into the Lord's treasury. But Achan secretly kept a robe and some silver and gold for himself. Now Phineas is not suggesting the nine and a half tribes have done the same thing as Achan. He mentions Achan to remind them of the consequences in verse 20. When Achan son of Zerah was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come on the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sin. When Israel moved on from Jericho to attack Ai, they were defeated and about 36 of them died because of Achan's sin. So the first point this delegation wants to make is you can't just do what you want. If you turn away from God, we're all affected. And when Steve dealt with Achan's sin, he reminded us this is relevant for us too. There is no such thing as sin that doesn't affect other people. 
your sin or my sin always has consequences for others. And so when a church fellowship refuses to deal with sin, it becomes an ineffective church. As individuals, first of all, and also as a body, we have to deal with our sin. Not just for the good of our own souls, but for the good of others. So this delegation from the nine and a half tribes comes with a legitimate concern for the welfare and the future of all Israel. Their motivation is entirely right. They want to prevent Israel from falling away from God. And they're prepared to make sacrifices to keep Israel together. That's the second point they make here in verse 19. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord your God. In other words, if there's something wrong with your new situation, come back and share our land. Better that than to fall into idolatry. The nine and a half tribes are willing to make do with less land to keep Israel united in faithfulness to God. That shows their motivation here is pure. They're ready to solve the issue with war if necessary, if that's what it takes to keep Israel faithful to God. But before they resort to war, they're willing to make personal sacrifices to solve the issue. They show a concern for united faithfulness and a willingness to sacrifice for it. And again, aren't there things that we can learn from this? If I see a brother or sister who seems to be teetering on the edge of sin and faithlessness, maybe my first instinct is to charge in and give them a good talking to. But maybe before I do that, I need to ask, can I offer them help? If I'm going to challenge them, am I also willing to make personal sacrifices to help them away from sin and support them in faithfulness? That might involve money, but it's more likely to involve time. Time to listen and support. Maybe opening our home. The nine and a half tribes have a great approach here. And equally important is their willingness to listen. And as they listen, this is what they hear in verse 21. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh replied to the heads of the clans of Israel. The mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel know. If this has been done in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, 
May the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord. So your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings and sacrifices other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. The two and a half tribes show a concern for united faithfulness and the wisdom to plan for it. First of all, when they realize how their altar has been interpreted, they're distraught. They assure the others it's not an act of rebellion. They have built it with Israel's future unity in mind. That Israel would be united in true worship of the Lord for generations to come. Because they can imagine future generations from the nine and a half tribes excluding the two and a half tribes. To those of us who haven't visited Israel, the Jordan is just a thin blue line on a map. But on the ground, it's a significant boundary. 160 miles from top to bottom with no bridges at this time. And we saw earlier in the book at specific times of the year, it's uncrossable apart from a miracle. So it's easy to see how future generations west of the Jordan might look across that boundary and begin thinking about them and us. Them over there and us over here. And once people start thinking that way, unity has already been lost. It's only a short step then until people start saying, well, the Lord's tabernacle is over here, so he's our God. Who's your God? And so out of concern for united worship in the future of the one true God, the two and a half tribes planned ahead. They assure the delegation the altar is not for sacrifices. It is a replica of the true altar at Shiloh. But it's positioned so that when the nine and a half tribes look across the Jordan, in their field of vision will be this imposing replica altar. So every time they look towards the two and a half tribes, they'll be reminded they worship the same God as us. 
This altar is not for the two and a half tribes, it's for the nine and a half. To remind them what they share with the two and a half. That's why they built it where the nine and a half can see it on their side of the Jordan. One writer says the Jordan is a symbol of separation. The altar is a symbol of unity. So this altar isn't for worshipping other gods, it's to preserve worship of the true God. And so, the two and a half share exactly the same concern as the nine and a half. In the future, they want all Israel to hold fast to the Lord and walk in obedience to the Lord. And they've had the wisdom to plan for that future united worship. They know it won't happen unless they plan for it. They can foresee the drift that will happen if they don't plan to avoid the drift. And surely the application for us is we also need to plan wisely. If as parents we don't teach our children about God, are they likely to pick up all they need in Sunday school? We have plenty of reasons to thank God for our Sunday school teachers. But it's not really their responsibility to teach our children about God. The primary responsibility is ours. In the past, I've heard Christians say, the church failed my children. But I want to respond by saying, did you fail your children? Did you fail by abdicating your responsibility and expecting the church to do it for you? As parents, we can't save our children. But if we care about the church of the future, we will plan wisely. We will give our children every assistance to become the church of the future. This altar we've just read about, it didn't guarantee pure worship in Israel's future. But it did give it every chance. Parents are to do the same with their children. And then, yes, we as a church body also have a big responsibility. And as church leaders, we have to plan wisely for the next generation. We have to build opportunities and links now, today, with the future in mind. So that the next generation will say, not that's their church, but that's our church. Not he's their God, but he's our God. I don't know if there is a big boundary between the younger and older members of this church. But if there is, we need to be committed to minimizing that boundary. Look how this ends up in Israel. Verse 30. When Phinehas the priest and the leaders of the community, the heads of the clans of the Israelites, heard what Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to say, they were pleased. 
And Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. Then Phineas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites and Gadites in Gilead and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praised God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. Ultimately, what holds Israel together is the reality that they're united in the truth. It's not the altar, it's what the altar represents. The truth that the Lord is God and the Lord alone, commitment to that truth is the only thing that will hold Israel together. It's the only thing that will counteract that big watery ditch that separates them. Their common background won't be enough. In the years to come, that common background will begin to fade. Only the truth can hold them together. That's something the New Testament underlines in the context of the church. The New Testament church had even less to hold it together than the 12 tribes did. Church members didn't share the same background or nationality. It was obvious nothing could keep them together except faith in Jesus Christ. And so in Galatians, Paul writes to the church, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying you stop being male or female, Jew or Greek, when you come to Christ. No, his point is, Christ is the only one who can make those significant differences become insignificant. Only the truth of salvation in Christ can make such different people into one united people. That's the same for us. We are divided by nationality, age, musical preferences, dress, style, income levels, politics, personality. Loads of significant differences. So when we talk about being united and planning wisely for the future, what do we need to focus on? But we don't need to focus on how we can get others to like the same things as us or talk like us. We need to focus on the truth about Jesus and the unity we already have in Jesus. And we have to be willing to make some personal sacrifices so the focus remains on Jesus and doesn't shift to things that could divide us, like our personal preferences for this or that, new or old, or our background, church or non-church, 
Some of us grew up in church. We have ideas about the proper way to do things. Some of us didn't grow up in church. So the proper ways to do things don't always make sense. That can cause a lot of friction. If we don't make sure the focus stays on Jesus. We can learn a lot today from a replica altar three and a half thousand years ago. And now we can answer the question that we started with. What is the best kind of worship war? It's when both sides realize they're fighting on the same side. That's what the 12 tribes discovered. At first they misunderstood each other in a big, big way. But because they genuinely all wanted the same thing, to see the Lord worshipped faithfully, to see all Israel hold fast to the Lord, because of that united purpose, things ended positively when they talked about it. And so let's pray that's always true of us as a church. Let's pray that we continue to fight on the same side with the same purpose to see the name of Jesus honored and glorified. We're going to close with two songs which remind us he is Lord of the church and he is with us. Let's sing Lord of the church and then we are not alone.